I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive, a show that plugs you into your community of grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. We're going to get three out of four tonight on the show. So stick around as we check in with Noah Greenwald, Endangered Species Director for the Center for Biological Diversity, which has launched a lawsuit over the denial and delay of federal protections to 10 species. The Rural Utah Project is proving that Digital Plus codes are good for voting and contactless food delivery on the Navajo Nation. Folks from Salt Lake Community Mutual Aid will check in about their community fridge project, which is off the ground, but already running into friction with the city. If successful, they hope to help other folks stock a fridge in their neighborhoods. We'll check in with Salt Lake Tribune crime reporter Jessica Miller. That frontline doc, Shots Fired, premieres tomorrow night on PBS Utah. Muralist Beto Conejo from this past weekend's debut of his first ever large mural celebrating wild Utah and the Latino community's place in it. Let's get started by turning our attention to the fact that it is Public Health Day. And a big thank you nationwide to folks in our hospitals, doctors, nurses, admin, cleaning crew, everyone who helps to keep us well, takes care of us when we aren't, and has been dealing with so much over the last nearly two years of this pandemic. Thank you. Earlier today on Utah's Capitol Hill, Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson and some other folks got together to say a collective thank you, and we passed the microphone for some voices from that press conference. First up, Lieutenant Governor Henderson. I just want to say uh, that on behalf of the people of the state of Utah, 3.3 million people of the state of Utah, um, Governor Cox and I are honored to be able to thank the thousands of Utah healthcare workers and especially our nurses who have battled so tirelessly over the past almost two years now. Every one of us has been deeply affected by the pandemic, uh, whether we have experienced COVID-19 ourselves or loved ones have, um, it doesn't matter, we've all been affected by it. We've changed the way we work. Uh, we've changed the way our kids attend schools. Um, we've been vaccinated, we've been tested, we've been quarantined, we've been isolated, we've worn masks, um, and we've kept distance from each other when it's been necessary. And it's been really, really hard. But all of those things that we've done have helped and they've gone a long way to prevent the transmission of COVID-19 in our communities. And, uh, and we, have to keep, we have to keep fighting, we have to keep doing it. So for some people, COVID-19 might seem like a distant memory, um, but I know for our healthcare workers, it's a, a very much a daily challenge still. Um, they're still neck deep in the pandemic every single day. They're caring for more patients, they're caring for sicker, patients um, than they ever have in terms of uh, COVID-19 patients. And they still watch their patients die, terrible and often lonely deaths. But they also continue to dedicate their time, their energy and their talents to ensuring that we and our loved ones are all taken care of. And I have felt this personally in my own life and with my own family members. Last year at this time, healthcare workers were treated as heroes, the heroes that they are. We'll never forget the communities that banked pots and pans outside their windows each night in appreciation of their efforts. We'll never forget emergency vehicles with lights and sirens and first responders lining the streets leading to the hospitals in tribute. But unfortunately, a lot of those scenes have been replaced in some instances with either indifference or forgetfulness, or even sometimes disrespectful behavior. So today we want to make sure that they know how much we appreciate their efforts. The state of Utah and the Utah Department of Health have partnered with all of the healthcare systems in our state, the, the Utah Hospital Association and the Utah Healthcare Association to develop a new campaign to recognize the efforts of our healthcare workers. The campaign is designed to ensure that these workers feel the love on social media and on television. And uh, in, in just a minute, we're going to show you this new TV spot that will begin airing this week. But uh, in conclusion, um, I just want to say that in addition to just thanking 
our healthcare workers. I want to remind everybody that there are very uh, specific things that we can all do to actually show our healthcare workers um, that we appreciate everything that they have done for us. Um, that is, of course, get vaccinated if you haven't already been vaccinated. If you have been vaccinated and it's uh, in, in the appropriate amount of time has lapsed, please get your booster. Um, if you get your kids vaccinated. Uh, everyone now five years and older can get vaccinated. Uh, we, in the past three weeks, have, have gotten 14% of our five to 11 year olds vaccinated, which um, is uh, above the, the target so far that we've been shooting for. And we're really excited about that. If you see a healthcare worker while you're out and about, say hi to them, thank them, buy them their coffee, um, give them an elbow bump. And if heaven forbid, you find yourself needing their care, please, please give them the respect that they deserve and that they have so valiantly earned. You've fought, you've protected, you've struggled, you've persevered. You've worked tirelessly during this pandemic. When you were overwhelmed, you endured. Many of us haven't made it, but so many more of us have. For watching over our family, our friends, our loved ones, we thank you. Uh, I'm Nancy, and I work right now at LDS Hospital in the NICU and I've worked for Intermountain for 23 years, and I've been a nurse for 18 years. My name is Alyssa. I work at LDS Hospital in the NICU as well. I've worked for Intermountain Healthcare for just about 13 years, and I've been in the NICU environment for the last eight years. So NICU, we're talking the tiniest. Babies. Yeah. Yep. Babies. What have you seen in terms of these most vulnerable patients over the course of COVID? Um, I mean, we've obviously seen moms that have had COVID, and it's really sad. As long as the baby's healthy, the baby can usually stay with the mom with a few, you know, isolation precautions. But if the baby gets sick, then the baby gets into the NICU, and the mom and the baby are not able to be with each other until, you know, yeah, 10 days isolation from their brand new baby. It's been those COVID babies that we've seen, um, it's been really hard when we've had to do cares over an iPad with the mom. Um, we're both mothers and we know that it, being away from your newborn for 10 days has got to be just heart-wrenching and as the nurse taking care of them, we're grateful to show them the baby, but it is really hard knowing that we're keeping that baby from their mom because of COVID. So here is where um, kicking off a campaign to thank healthcare workers. What is, what do you as healthcare workers want the public to know, vaccinated or unvaccinated? Um, I think it just goes back to be aware of your surroundings, be kind, um, get educated. We know it's a personal choice to get vaccinated or not, but we think everybody should take into account what's going on around them and be respectful, wear a mask, get vaccinated if you can, um, but get educated in the proper way. What would you add about uh, treatment good and bad you've suffered or endured or experienced as a nurse? Um, so in the beginning of the pandemic, it was interesting. All of a sudden, like these signs were showing up in our yard, like, thank you, healthcare hero. And then as the time has gone by, like even in my own neighborhood, I feel like people are starting to not trust us anymore. They think that um, we're making up these fake numbers, you know, just that it's like some like weird political something that we have to gain from it but it's not true we just want you know the best for everyone so um just saying thank, thank you or just being respectful to your healthcare worker and it's real it's real it's not fake it's real my thanks there at the end to nurses nancy and Alyssa, who gave me an interview on side of the capitol earlier today be sure to say thank you next time you uh go to your doctor or get a shot from a nurse, or you have Thanksgiving dinner and you know someone at the table works in public health and say thank you. One of the ways you can do that, like the nurses said, get those vaccinations, keep them up to date, get your booster. In fact, you can get more details on vaccinations and COVID testing sites at coronavirus.utah.gov. I'll also put that link in tonight's show notes, folks. Another press conference I went to happened over the weekend in the parking lot of Love and Tea, the new Mexican coffee shop right there in the old Wiener Schnitzel building. If you can picture that in your mind, it's on the southwest corner 
of North Temple and 800 West. And on the neighboring building's wall, a brand new mural from an artist, his first big project. Let's pass the microphone and find out more. Cool. So my name is Humberto Sanchez Conejo, but I just go by Beto or Beto Conejo. And um, I am an artist and uh, specifically a muralist. And I painted the new mural that is on North Temple and 800 West uh, over here by Love North Temple's Mexican Coffee's parking lot. It's got some good hot chocolate ice cream. It's got some good champurrado. Well. <laughs> champurrado, I gotta try <laughs> that next. Go. Um, that's got a little what, flour in it to thicken it, I think. Yeah, right? yeah, is that yeah. What it is? Okay. yeah. So it tell me what was your inspiration for the mural and, and describe it for our listeners who can't see it. Yeah, um, so I'll describe it first and then I'll go ahead and talk about I can, what kind of inspired me to make this specific piece. So here we have about a 100 foot wall that's about 26 feet tall. And um, pretty much we have like a blue background sky with some clouds that are very animated, very cartoon style. Um, and then we have in the background also a U- Southern Utah landscape. And um, essentially in the very front part, we have this character that I drew that I guess is what you, you can say is the focus of uh, the piece. Uh, just kind of walking with a backpack on um, and uh, he has a marker in his hand and then he um, he pretty much was the one that was painting the thing that says here protect wild Utah and um, inside the backpack there's a variety of things including you know just like vegetables and uh, fruits and whatnot and uh, also it has some leaves creeping out of it as if you know what I'm saying like to say like nature still like a part of you know where where I'm at. You know what I'm saying. Well, and he's a giant pelican. Yeah, right? yeah, it's a giant pelican, and like, I don't know. As far as the pelican goes, I'm I'm still trying to figure out my style as an artist. So I just kind of did what came most natural to me, and I just said, you know what? I don't know why that came out specifically right now, but like the pelican, but uh, it always reminded me of the what is it called the uh, the Salt Lake Gulls. Ah, the sea yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I always kind of tried doing my interpretation of it. Uh. Yeah, and I guess it came out looking like a pelican, you know what I'm saying? And that's all right. I like, I like a pelican, if I'm being honest. I, looks, I like it. Um, but yeah, and then uh, the clothes that he's wearing is just like loose, baggy clothing, um, which I ended up doing lots of detail in. And um, inside that clothing, I guess it has like a lot of representation of um, the area that a lot of people here that we grow up in, in like these western uh, Salt Lake neighborhoods, right? Uh, Glendale, Rose Park, uh, South Salt Lake areas. We're, you know what I'm saying? We're used to seeing specific, um, I guess, stereotypes. Um, and these stereotypes end up harming a lot of what um, our causes are. Since uh, I ended up getting involved with, I guess, the whole um, activism and nature stuff towards the beginning of my college experience, which I was even lucky enough to begin, right? And they... Um, when I was in these spaces, I realized a lot that um, not only were there not a lot of like Latinos or Latinx identifying folk already, but there was even less people that identify that came with the background, like the socioeconomic background that comes with uh, coming from these neighborhoods. And um, I found myself being able to relate less and less to um, not just the cause, but to the people and the community that's, that does this kind of work. Um, so I don't know, I found it, I guess you could you could call that, um, what do you call it, intruder syndrome? Imposter, Imposter syndrome. syndrome. That's the go. one. There you go. Okay. Per- perfect. That's the one. But yeah, I guess you could, I guess, say it was a, a sort of a version of that. Um, and then I just kind of had to like, you know what I'm saying, I, be able to visualize myself and um, people around me, um, help them see it as well, right? And, so you had um, to shut out that noise. Yeah. And I kind of just was able to like personify that into this character with... Um, with, I guess, just like what he's doing, you know what I'm saying? Painting on a wall. Did you name him? You know, so I actually haven't. I thought about it. I've been asked this before. I've been asked this before. I haven't, actually. Yeah. We were thinking of potentially um, letting people, um, I guess, pitch in a name. Uh, people like, uh, they, we have a couple schools and like a Boys and Girls Club over here. So I'm thinking of potentially going and asking them if like, the kids would like to try and name them, you know? But, is uh, this a work in progress then? Might you come back and add a few things? Um, the mural, for sure, I think I, I would say I'd call it a day. But um, the pro, like, I also want to work not just with, I guess, putting it and then leaving it as it is. I want to see if I can use the design for more things. You know, let's see if I can put the design on a shirt or something and use it for a good cause. I'm trying to see if we can fundraise uh, funds for SUA and whatnot as well with the design. So but, the uh, environment's important to you then? Yeah. Why? 
I mean, if you look look at it, like, um, I think for me it's important just because like we're all part of the environment. We like we like to separate ourselves a lot. Uh, we as society, right, like to separate uh, ourselves from you. Well, you would know as nature, but we don't look at it as like, we are part of nature, you know. And then um, it's not until you like look either into an, an into it in like an educational manner where you're just like. It's important to protect it because, you know, we're going to go on an interesting route soon enough. But uh, it's also looking back and looking within, you know, and um, a lot of people and like um, that are coming from this neighborhood, like they identify as indigenous, whether it be indigenous to like uh, this Utah area, which is, you know, um, indigenous territory, but also like migrants that came into this neighborhood mm-hmm. that are... Um, Potentially identifying as indigenous from the lands that they came from, um, lots of those cultures and lots of um, that, I guess, those values that come from them are to protect the land and to protect the, like nature as is, and um, be able to not necessarily just um, live off of it, but to be live in harmony with it. And I think that's kind of what drives me to, I guess, be part of the movement. I guess you could say. Beto Conejo at the unveiling of his Wild Utah mural on North Temple. And now, something to get on your radar for tomorrow night, 9 p.m. on PBS Utah. That's Channel 7 here along the Wasatch Front. It is the premiere of Shots Fired. Salt Lake Tribune reporters Jessica Miller and Peyton Harkins have been working for over a year documenting the race of people shot by police in Utah, what that data tells us, and where we're headed tomorrow night on PBS Utah, 9 p.m. local time. The frontline documentary Shots Fired finally premieres. And joining us to talk about it, Let's pass that microphone. Hi, Jessica Miller. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Doing well. And this was supposed to air, I think, in October, but more reporting came up. So what Mm -hmm. has happened since we spoke to you in September? So over these last few months, we've really been working um, on solidifying our data, right? This project is very unique in that, um, you know, we didn't get this government or, or we didn't get this data from the government. This database didn't exist. We're creating it ourselves. And so when we're talking about important things like race and the mental health, uh, you know, status of a lot of these people, we just wanted a little bit more time to kind of button up the, the that data analysis to make sure that what everyone sees tomorrow is uh, is solid and is the best reporting that we can do. Kind of exciting to see this come to fruition, I'm guessing, Jessica. It's very exciting. I mean, this is a a lot of the reporting people have already seen in the Salt Lake Tribune. You've probably read a lot of what we've done so far. But to see it in this new medium, to see it on television uh, will be really, really interesting to to watch. And I'm pretty excited for it. So what happens next? So tomorrow the documentary will air, but the work with with the Tribune team isn't isn't over yet. We still have a little bit more reporting to do, particularly around um, the you know the number of people who are in a mental health crisis when they come in contact with police, and then that ends in a police shooting. That's going to be our next uh, focus, and we hope to have those stories out by the end of the year. Something that appeared on the 22nd, uh, at least online, I don't know if it was in the print edition, you can help me here, is Peyton Harkins and Abby Ellis's story, is the fear factor overblown in police shootings? So you do keep continuing to focus on this issue, Jessica. That's right. I mean, I think that that's a big topic that uh, that's in the documentary and that we've seen a lot over this last year as you've explored this is you know, the law says that police can use this kind of force if they reasonably fear for their lives. But if they're being trained to think that everyone is is a threat, you know, how does that affect their decision making when they actually go out in the field? If, if when at training they're being told everyone's, you know, could be a threat, everyone could try to harm you. Do you take that kind of mentality into the field and maybe you see threats where there where there aren't any So perhaps some articles coming up in the ensuing year over how to reform training. I saw on 60 Minutes just last night that conversation happening in Austin, Texas. So I'm excited to see where your team takes it next, Jessica. Yeah, I'm I'm excited too. I mean, I think in this last legislative session, we talked a lot about police training and data collection. And so it'll be interesting to see in this session that starts in January, how that conversation continues, um, if there's still an appetite or the political will, I guess, to continue these reforms and to add 
more training or more data collection to to better understand police use of force and policing in general. We talk a lot about more training, more training, but what is in the training specifically and how to change it, I think, might be a point uh, where we can start. What do you think? Right. I mean, there's the basic training that police go through, and then there's these, these, sorts, these sorts of specialized training, such as de-escalation, how to interact with people in a mental health crisis, how to um, interact with people who have autism or, or things like that. And so I think that more specialized training was a focus last year. And so it'll be interesting to see if, if we continue with that this year or maybe there won't be the political will that there was a year ago. Obviously, it was a lot different this last legislative session with the protests that had happened last summer. There was a lot of momentum um, that hasn't quite carried out uh, this year. As a reporter, I'm guessing you also kept an eye on this Rittenhouse trial that just wrapped up. And I was interested to note that that reasonable danger that one felt for one's life was at play in the self-defense claim. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it's interesting because I do think that I, me as a reporter and a lot of our my colleagues, we think about self-defense and, and uh you know, that reasonable fear standard in the the context of only police shootings, but it actually applies to anybody that, you know, I mean, it's, it's a little bit different uh, there, but, but the, but to be able to articulate reasonable fear, um, you know, applies to the police as well as, as anyone who's defending their home or, or in another self-defense situation. Well, Jessica, thanks for the update. And we'll be watching tomorrow night, 9 p.m. on PBS Utah Shots Fired, the frontline documentary that you and your coworkers have collaborated on for the last year in documenting police-involved shootings. Thanks so much for the work you do in the community. Thank you. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the latest coverage from the Salt Lake Tribune on this issue, as well as details about tomorrow night's screening, 9 p.m. on Channel 7 of Shots Fired, the frontline documentary. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. When we come back, the story of a community fridge. Hey, Salt Lake County Parks and Rec needs lifeguards, and you can try it out December 11th during the county's Just Try It lifeguarding event, open to folks ages 14 and up. Get all the details at bit.ly slash slcoguard. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Still to come, the Center for Biological Diversity's Noah Greenwald. He'll talk to us about how that organization feels the Biden administration has dropped the ball on federal protections for more than 60 species facing extinction and why the group has filed a lawsuit that claims 10 species protection wrongly withheld from animals, plants nationwide as Endangered Species Act problems persist under President Biden. Now we turn our attention to Salt Lake Community Mutual Aid. Thanksgiving is just a few days away. And food security is top of mind this time of year because of the holiday. And the want is that much more obvious with various food drives across the state. A very localized answer to food insecurity year-round is happening in Rose Park with a Salt Lake Community Mutual Aid Project known as the Fridge. Let's pass the microphone and find out more. Hi, all. My name is Lucy. I use she and they pronouns. And I've been organizing with Salt Lake Community Mutual Aid for about a year now. Yes, thanks for having me. My name is Sarah. I use she, they program, pr- pronouns as well. Um, and I've been with Salt Lake Community Mutual Aid for about half a year. But um, I live a couple doors up from the community fridge in Rose Park. Hi, I'm Kale Carthy. Uh, they and them pronouns. Um, I'm a neighbor in Glendale and a member of Salt Lake Community Mutual Aid. So, Lucy, tell us about how long Salt Lake Community Mutual Aid has been engaged in work in the community and how the Fridge came about. Sure. So Salt Lake Community Mutual Aid actually started in March 2020 in response to the pandemic. Um, And we started out focusing on food justice issues, originally focusing on providing free grocery or PPE deliveries um, to anyone who needed them either for financial reasons or safety reasons. Um, And then in the uprisings in May 2020, we started to have a broader community focus beyond uh, food justice um, and started offering protest support, handing out masks, water, hand sanitizer at some of the protests here in Salt Lake. Um, And then additionally became involved in some unsheltered 
outreach um, with the Open Air Shelter Coalition last winter and have been actively involved in that since then. Um, and we have a broad range of projects now from the community fridge and food justice projects along those lines to a recurring really, really free market, um, a gender affirming clothing drive, um, community centric events. Um, so this fridge originally came about when um, we shifted away from providing grocery deliveries because it was really taxing um, on our capacity and financial resources. And we're thinking about different ways of supporting um, communities and kind of creating systems of support um, that could be sustainable and ongoing without Salt Lake Communities Mutual Aid um, active uh, capacity and involvement. Kaysen, go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners, please. Yeah, my name is Kaysen. I've been working with uh, Salt Lake Mutual Aid for, um, I don't know, about half a year or so and kind of got started when we found the uh, fridge for super cheap up at the university and uh, went and picked it up and stored it in the back of somebody's house. And now it's out in the community, which is just kind of a dream. How did you identify food security or insecurity in your community as an issue that could be aided by a community fridge, Kaysen? Well, uh, like Lucy said, we had been, um, the group had been, you know, doing food delivery for a while and uh, just kind of finding that, I don't know, I think that the capacity was kind of limited to get food to as many people as who needed it. Um, I personally had used uh, food banks of the standard model at the beginning of the pandemic. And um, while they were very useful and helpful uh, for myself and many people in that situation, I found them to be lacking in many other ways as well. Um, And so just the idea of having a community resource that was community resource that's for the entire community um, that lacks stigma of a traditional food bank uh, that has better food than a traditional food bank and is um, entirely accessible 24-7. I think that was really appealing to all of us. Well, thank you. This is very grassroots. I love it. So let's go to Sarah and Kale. So Sarah, talk about the community reception to uh, this being in the community, but folks using it as well. Yeah, absolutely. So in my personal experience, the community reception has been extremely positive. Um, I, Like I said, I can just look out my window and see it being used um, because I live very close to the fridge. Um, It's a topic of conversation just as we're standing out in our front yards um, about what we find in there and what it means to the community. Um, All my neighbors um, that I am uh, in close touch with, we're always contributing to it. We use the fridge as well. Uh, My partner and I were just down there last night to provide an inventory update to the group and just picked up some really um, yummy noodle cups and some carrots. So um, it's just been really awesome to see the benefits it brings to our relationships as well as our individual lives. It's a real delicate balance. You're providing this in the community and, you know, one person could shut it down in essence with misuse. How are you managing that as a community? Because you, you can give to it and you, as you need, can take from it. That's a great question. So we've had, um, we clean it out every every day or as needed, but we have deep cleanings at least once a week. Um, and we are adhering to, I have my food handler's permit. Um, we are adhering to, um, you know, health guidelines for storing the food. We're constantly posting updates, um, you know, about uh, what's, you know, what's just best. We want to give each other our best, what's best practices, no expired foods. Um, we date, try to label things, um, or always label things. If we can't figure out what something is, we can rotate that out or try to see if someone will get back to us online, um, with what something was that was donated that might not have a label. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of upkeep, but, um, it's a big collaborative effort amongst all of us here and, and more people who couldn't be here. Coordinating through social media, I take it? Yes, yes, definitely. Kale, uh, this leads me to what you can share with us, and that's how the city has 
someone or the entity that monitors health and safety standards has responded. What's been going on with the community fridge in that regard, Kale? Yeah, so um, in late October, we did receive a notice um, from the city that um, there had been a complaint. And um, originally the zoning commission came out, um, but as it turned out, the structure that we built a small like structure around the fridge to protect it from the elements, um, but it's very small. And so it, it didn't actually fall under um, the zoning person's jurisdiction. And that got passed along to civil enforcement. Um, and as it stands now, we have um, a citation from them that falls under, <laughs> make it a little technical, but under 21A, 40140, which is junk vehicles and materials citation. Um, we are working with the city to try to get a little more clarification on that. Um, as the citation is written, it mostly pertains to like unusable appliances and junk and vehicles. Like um, they don't allow like junk, um, unusable things in a front yard. Um, but as we've said, like it's a very usable resource and um, working appliance. Um, and so we, we have an upcoming meeting with them to try to get a little more clarification. Um, we would love to be in compliance, um, but aren't entirely sure the ways to do that. So hopefully we get a little more clarification from them soon. So while this is for the community, I don't want to exactly put your address on blast for it, but can you describe, is it in the in a driveway under uh, next to a garage? Can you kind of give us a little more context? Because I'm curious how they're applying this code pretty stringently to you. Um, it is in a front yard. We built a pad and um, a little protective structure around it, but it's, it's next to a driveway and a carport. Um, we're really trying to keep it as accessible as possible. So we put it near the sidewalk for anyone using mobility aids. It's easy, easily accessible that way. Um, there might be some issue that somewhere in the code that hasn't been made entirely clear to us yet. Um, there's an issue with having something like a community fridge, although, you know, obviously that's not in the code, something like a community fridge in a front yard. Um, but we're really trying to keep it as accessible as possible. Um, that's our goal. Now, they allow those tiny libraries in the same space. I'm guessing the issue of food in a fridge are, are complicating it, but they've given you a deadline of removing it by December 1st. And tomorrow you have this meeting to hopefully get some more clarification to, to keep this great grassroots project going. What is it you want the community to know about where your project stands and what it, this particular confrontation with the city might mean to other folks who want to do a community fridge? Um, I guess I'll say that like there has been, since we've started, this has been kind of our tester, like our pilot fridge with the intention of having fridges for any community that wants them. Um, you know, it's kind of this hyper-localized way to address food insecurity and support one another in our own community. Um, and so there's been a lot of interest in having them in other parts of the city. And so we're really hoping to figure out the ways that this can work within um, city code legally, uh, you know, stay, keep everything above board so this can be a resource throughout the city. Well, Kale, Sarah, Kaysen, and Lucy, thanks so much for talking about your grassroots project with us. And please come back and tell us how it shakes out, okay? Thank you so much for having us. Thanks again. Appreciate yeah, thank it. You. Thank you. Lucy, Kaysen, Sarah, and Kale, thank you for letting us know what's going on with your project in your neighborhood. And we will be sure to check back and find out how it shakes out and see how other community fridges may or may not, based on this case, open across the community. When we come back, the Center for Biological Diversity and going to court to protect animals and plants from extinction. If you're a homeowner or renter making 200% or less of the federal poverty rate and need help weatherizing your home, Utah Community Action can help. Visit utahca.org for details. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. Coming up at 7, Democracy Now!, followed by Red, White, and Blues with Brian Kelm. Michelle's Night Train at 10.30. And don't forget, you can start a brand new day each and every morning at 6 a.m. with John Florence. And now in October, 
The Center for Biological Diversity said the Biden administration was dropping the ball on federal protections for more than 60 species facing extinction. And this month, they're doing something about it. They're going to court. Lawsuits launched over the denial and delay of federal protections to 10 species, including a fish in Utah's own Virgin River. To find out more, let's pass the microphone. Yeah, I'm Noah Greenwald. I'm the Endangered Species Director for the Center for Biological Diversity. And we're an organization that works to protect endangered species across the country. So this is a pretty much nonpartisan issue when it comes to lawmakers not quite giving their full measure to the potential extinction of species, endangered species. Right, Noah? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's few who would, you know, say we should let species go extinct. Um, but it ends up being partisan to the degree, you know, how we how we prioritize that. And, you know, increasingly scientists recognize that we're in an extinction crisis, that we're at risk of losing more than a million species in the coming decades, you know, that this is an existential problem, not just for these species, but for ourselves as well. Just last week, the center filed two formal notices of intent to sue the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. What is that about and uh, what species are on the list? Yeah, so, you know, the the Fish and Wildlife Service has long struggled to list species to protect them under the Endangered Species Act in a timely fashion. You know, the act actually, you know, says that they're supposed to make decisions pretty quickly within a year after seeing, after receiving a petition. And on average, it's taken them 12 years to list species. And so, you know, we're constantly having to go to court to get them to make decisions about species. And so some of those, some of those 10 species we filed suit over fall in that box where they just um, are being too slow. One of them's the dune sagebrush lizard, which was, you know, first identified as being in need of protection in the 80s. You know, we previously petitioned for it. It got denied for bogus reasons. And so we've had to re-petition for it. It's a species that lives in southeastern New Mexico and West Texas. And, um, you know, it's very much threatened by oil and gas development in the in the Permian Basin. And then some of the other species, like the Virgin River spine dace fish, which you mentioned, were, in our view, wrongfully denied protection you know, so one of the the main threat to the spine dace is just rapid growth in St. George and wasteful water use that's just sucking the Virgin River dry. Um, and, uh, you know, climate change is certainly not going to help that situation. And so the, the service and denying it protection, when they looked at how far into the future they were going to consider, they only looked 20 years into the future. Um, But they were looking at, to do that, they were looking at a model that looks at climate impacts out to 2099. So they just, you know, the last 50, the, the 50 years of the model that projects out to 2099, they were like, oh, well, that's too far in the future. Who knows what'll happen then? And that's really not what the Endangered Species Act requires or says. It, it, it really requires giving the benefit of the doubt to the species. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Virgin River Spine Dance, which I understand the center petitioned petitioned the federal government for listing back in 2012? Yeah, exactly. So it's an example of that. You know, it takes, you know, here it is almost 10 years later before we're before we've finally gotten a 12-month finding on our petition. And then the petition ends up being a negative finding you know, based on this truncated look at the future and and what climate, the threat climate change poses. Um, And this was, you know, very much a tactic of the Trump administration to truncate how far into the future they looked when considering climate impacts. And so it's, it's disconcerting to see that policy continue under the Biden administration. I want to keep calling it the Virgin River Spine Dance, but it's Spine Dace. Can you describe this fish for our listeners? It has a very unique appearance, which gives it this name. Yeah, it's a it's a small fish that occurs in the Virgin River, and it has um, an interesting spine on its dorsal fin. It's a silvery minnow. Um, its its dorsal fin has eight rays, and the 
the first two of them are hard and spiny and uh, fused, which gives it the gives it the name the spine dace. And uh, it's actually not the only fish that's in trouble in the Virgin River. There's actually two already listed fish, um, the Virgin River round-tailed chub and the wound fin. And, uh, you know, those similar to the spine dace, those fish are, are imperiled by just over-appropriation of water by St. George. And, you know, maybe some of your listeners realize that St. George is actually one of the, they use more water per capita than just about anywhere else, you know, more than Vegas per capita by a substantial amount. So they just, as a community, just don't, don't conserve water in the way that's needed to in a desert climate. So our choices, the big hour as a state, as a populace, directly impacting the Virgin River spine days. Because yeah, and the river itself, yeah. really, you know, I mean, it dries the river up and, you know, that's a loss all unto itself. So you filed this intent to sue. What happens next? Because the time, the clock's already been ticking. And as you said, it takes decades for these cases to work their way through to their conclusion. Yeah. So under the Endangered Species Act, you have to file a 60-day notice before you file suit, you know, to give time for the for the government to respond. And, uh, you know, we would hope that they would respond and say, you're right, we're going to reconsider this decision, but that's unlikely. So we'll have to We'll have to take it to court and that will take it, you know, a year or two to wind its way through the courts. And if we win, you know, they'll have to make another decision, which will take another couple of years. And then hopefully we get a different decision at that point. But it, it shows you how slow the process is. And, you know, species have actually gone extinct waiting for protection. And that is just painful to hear, Noah. How can folks get involved or catch up on this issue with your organization? Well, they can visit our, our website at biologicaldiversity.org. And uh, they can become an online supporter, which will, you know, expose them to our alerts, which allows you to to uh, take action, at least submit comments on issues related to endangered species and keeps you informed about current endangered species issues, as well as issues on climate change and environmental health and a, a range of issues related to our environment and our health. Now, I know that I called you about this issue in particular, but is there anything else you want to get on people's radar while you have the microphone here on Radioactive? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I'd just, you know, hi again, highlight this extinction crisis that we're in. And, you know, we all depend on the same things that these species depend on, clean air and clean water, um, a consistent climate. Those are all things that we depend on. And a lot of those things come from ecosystems, you know, so ecosystems moderate our climate, they cycle nutrients, they pollinate our crops, and ecosystems are made of species. And so as we lose more and more species, you know, the, the, the web that makes up our life and supports us begins to unravel. And so it's, it's a very concerning, it's, it's right up there with climate change, and the, the two are actually quite related. And um, we really need to, to prioritize both of those issues for future generations. Noah, thank you so much for giving us some time on the show. Thanks, Laura. I appreciate it. Noah Greenwald of the Center for Biological Diversity. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the court case and how you might get involved on this issue with the center. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. To close out our show, the Rural Utah Project, in partnership with three local restaurant owners in Bluff, Utah, launched a first-of-its-kind pilot program to deliver food to residents on the Navajo Nation using digital plus code addresses, something the Rural Utah Project has been using to register voters. And let's find out some more about that by passing the microphone. Hello, my name is Daylene uh, Redhorse. I've been with Rural Utah Project probably since 2018. Um, this plus code is our rural um, address, what we use for physical addresses in rural areas because we don't have street names. We don't have, I don't know, everybody lives maybe more than a mile apart. So yeah. that's why we use these um, addresses. 
And what you say is where the streets have no name, the people have no vote. And with this project, uh, without this project, they have no, you know, easy door dash type of delivery. And so this is another proving that these digital plus codes can connect people in the community, that they are a legitimate address. Right, Daylene? Yes. A lot of the residents were pretty puzzled the way the plus code worked or the way it's written out. They weren't for sure it was going to work. And knowing a lot of businesses off reservation, some of them are not familiar with this code. So they're just given right off the bat, you know, that doesn't work. We don't, that's not familiar to us. So we can't use that. So the residents were getting skeptical about these plus codes that we've been giving them. So another way we wanted to show or prove to them that these plus codes do work, we decided to do this um, food delivery. All right. So you set up this pilot project just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so folks within a 20-mile radius of a certain point could participate. How'd it go? It went very well. Um, a lot of the residents, the only problem we had was a lot of the residents don't have emails, which is what the app required was that you have an email. But we've also um, had them call in and then they would give us the plus codes and we had um, maybe two drivers deliver these food. It went pretty well. Yeah. I think the first day was kind of slow and the next day we were slightly busier. This is something that I take for granted living in Salt Lake City, this convenience. So uh, how did people respond? In Monument Valley, we had a, she was a little over 90-year-old elderly woman who was surprised to know that we actually came to her doorstep with food, prepared food. (laughs) So she was pretty ecstatic about it. One of the participants is a brand new business owner. I want to get Gladina Yanito in, owner of Dina's Drinks, Desserts, and Dinners. Hi, how are you? Hi. This is not only a pilot to see if this kind of, you know, uh, door-to-door delivery can work, but this was the start of your business, Gladina. Uh, Yes, it is. I've always had a passion to cook. Um, I believe I started cooking when I was four or five years old, helping parents in the kitchen cooking and and learning new things to cook from my mom and dad and and just went for, you know, every chance I had a a kitchen to cook in, I I made sure I, I helped, I cooked, I cleaned, you know, whatever. Um, needs to be done in the kitchen is, is something that I I love doing. Um, I love prepping food. I love feeding people. It's just my in my nature to to you know. I've always wanted to sell food. I've always wanted to sell what I made. You know, get the compliment of it tasting good. You know, I I I live for those compliments. Um, I just want people to enjoy what I make and, and what I have to offer in food. So what did you this offer? Was there a special menu for this project? Yes. My favorite um, pasta is the chicken Alfredo. I love chicken Alfredo. Um, I won't pass it up anywhere. If it's on the menu, I'll have it myself. Um, I think I, I love making chicken Alfredo. And then I love spaghetti just because my daughter loves spaghetti. Um, those were my two dishes that I, I, I offer for, for dinner um, deliveries. Daylene, you worked closely, the Rural Utah Project, with the Chow Now platform, which now is inclusive of plus codes as a form of delivery address. What does that open up to folks in rural parts of the state, in particular down in the Montezuma Creek area where you did this project? I think it would give people opportunity to start like Grubhub. DoorDash, start to own delivery business. In so fact, you, you use your Rural Utah Project folks to deliver, right? To prove this could work. Yes. Yes. I think um, in Monument Valley, a lot of people were, I'm not sure if they were surprised or shocked to see TJ out delivering. Your executive so, director, TJ Ellerbeck. Yeah, so we, <laughs> we had somebody off the reservation actually find our homes using these plus codes. So that was another way to prove to them that the plus work, the plus codes did work. In fact, work. 
this this is part of the organizing uh, work that Rural Utah Project does. I was looking on your website, and we'll put a link in the show notes, folks, for folks to check it out. You're a 501c4 nonprofit. A lot of advocacy work that you do, but the stats say that you've registered 8,571 rural voters with 6,411 plus code addresses created and 10 counties organized. That's huge to getting people engaged. And if you can put some food on top of that. Eye <laughs> <laughs> opener. So um, this was a pilot project, but are the restaurants involved still saying, hey, in 20 miles, if you can use this, then great. I've come to uh, the realization that um, not everybody is familiar with the plus codes. Um, not everybody is familiar with accessing, you know, the the Chownow app online. Um, it, it's going to be a bumpy road, you know, to, to get started, to get people on there. And, and in reality, I've still got people texting me and messaging me and I'm like go to the website (laughs) (laughs) it's easier if you just go to the website and you'll you'll know when I can deliver it gives you a time option as to you know prepping the food and then getting it delivered and that would give our customers you know heads up on when their food would be delivered well it sounds like a way to build the use of the plus codes for voting because voting you may do in a primary and a general election once a year but you might order remotely for contact contact delivery several times a month. Yeah, I, I'm really I'm really hopeful for this Chow Now app. I'm really hopeful hopeful that it it's going to be you know a a gear to use to to go forward in in getting food delivered to these homes using their their plus codes. And I I just wish they would. They would get on the Chow Now app and utilize that. <laughs> Folks, get on the Chow Now app down there in Montezuma <laughs> Creek. So, Gladina, um, it sounds like this might be crucial to building out your business. It is crucial. It is. Um, it's it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for my little business to get out there. It's an opportunity for me to thrive on. Um, I, I'm getting feedback from from the food that is being delivered. Um, we do the pickup um, uh, option where we get located in Montezuma Creek at the food court and, and I get uh, my customers picking up their orders there, which is, which is, you know, still to this day is like, oh my gosh, you're making lunch plates to go. Oh my gosh, you're doing this. Oh my gosh. And it's like, okay, well then go on to the Chow Now app and then utilize that and you'll see my food, you know, on, on the app. <laughs> well, congratulations on getting up and running, Gladina, owner of Dina's Drinks, Desserts, and Dinners down in Montezuma Creek. And Daylene, what's the website so folks can check out what you're doing with Rural Utah Project and, and get involved? Um, we have a website. You can just go to ruralutahproject.org and you can see a lot of the different things we've done. And you can read up on bios of our staff. Our staff are involved in their own little projects and what we've accomplished so far. Thank you so much for giving us some time, Daylene and Gladina. Thank you. Daylene Redhorse of the Rural Utah Project and Gladina Yanito of Dina's Drinks and Desserts. Check tonight's show notes for more details. And that's it. That's our show. My thanks to all of our guests this evening for making the show possible and you for listening and supporting Listeners Community Radio of Utah. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening. Have a great night. Here's a little Marvin Gaye to get you to democracy now.